Hey everyone, this is Lonnie. Before we get started here today, I just wanted to give everybody a heads up that we will be discussing issues around suicide, self-harm, and sexual assault. Uh, if that is not something that you are able to deal with today, feel free to tap out and come back later. We will welcome you with open arms. And now, Endless! Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and youngest of the muses, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and she who walks amongst you and you do not know me, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Dream of a Thousand Cats, Calliope. Episode 11 from Netflix's The Sandman, Season 1. Dream of a Thousand Cats and Calliope was written by Catherine Smythe McMullen. Dream of a Thousand Cats was directed by Hisko Hulsane. Calliope was directed by Lewis Hopper. Justice is a delusion you will not find on this or any other sphere. Wisdom is no part of dreams, Lyth Walker, though dreams are a part of the sum of each life's experiences. But revelation, that is the province of dream. Time to wake up. In Dream of a Thousand Cats, we see a young kitten living the pampered life of a beloved house cat. Late at night, she is coaxed out of her cozy home to attend a cat activist meeting led by a Siamese cat with a story to tell. The Siamese cat talks of how she used to live with humans until they murdered her babies, and then she realized that this was a toxic relationship. She prayed, and then she dreamed. In her dream, she tells a crow she's searching for revelation. He tells her to go to a cave in a mountain to talk to the cat of dreams, but it'll be a dangerous journey. She follows the path faithfully and arrives to find a number of large, threatening animals guarding the entrance. She demands to be let in, and they allow it, warning her that dreams have a price. She walks into the cave and finds the cat of dreams demanding answers. The cat of dreams tells her to look into his eyes and he shows her a history where cats were larger and humans were smaller and cats ruled the earth, hunting and killing the humans. But one day a human realized that dreams shape the world and that if the humans could all just dream one dream together, they could change their reality. It took a while, but eventually the humans dreamed the world so that they were larger and cats were smaller. Their dreams reached back in time and changed everything so that it was always this way and cats were never the rulers. The cat of dreams tells the Siamese cat to wake up and change the world. She does and leaves her home to travel the world and preach to other cats to tell them to dream and change the world back to what it should have been all along. A world ruled by cats. All she needs is a thousand cats to believe her and dream this world, and they can change it all. The little kitten says she believes, and the Siamese says that gives her hope. The big gray cat walks the kitten home, and she goes inside and goes to sleep and dreams, presumably about playing with and eating her owners. In Calliope, we open in live action with writer Richard Maddock as he teaches a writing class where he talks about his best-selling book, which still doesn't have a sequel. A young woman in scrubs comes in and he dismisses class. She brings him a thing in a jar and starts to give him her manuscript to read, but he discourages her from becoming a writer. That night, he goes to see best-selling and prolific writer Erasmus Fry. He says he hasn't written in over a year. He hands over the jar and Fry explains that it's a bazaar taken from the stomach of a woman who has Rapunzel syndrome, which causes her to eat her own hair. Pardon me, 
Yuck. Fry then explains how he used magic to capture a muse and brings Maddox up to a locked attic room to see Calliope, one of the nine muses, who is not a muse either at being held prisoner or at being passed on like a possession to Maddox. Fry had promised to free Calliope before he died, but he lied. Maddox nervously leaves with Calliope, but Fry tells him not to worry. Calliope is bound to him and cannot run away. He also says the best way to get her to inspire him is through force, because he's a disgusting troll man. Before shutting his door on them both, he tells Maddox that he can pay Fry back by convincing his publisher to bring one of Fry's old books, Here Comes a Candle, back into print. He was particularly proud of that one. Back at his house, Calliope tells Maddox that he must set her free. He cannot keep a daughter of Zeus in his house like a possession. He promises he will, but first he asks her to help him, and once the book is done, he'll let her go. She says writers are liars, and she won't help him, so he locks her in a room and leaves her there. He rushes downstairs, sits at the computer, and waits. Nothing. So he does the worst thing any human can ever do and Googles himself, hashtag not a euphemism, and scrolls through all the messages from fans eagerly awaiting the second novel. The next day, Maddox brings Calliope gifts, but she says this is not how it's done. He's supposed to pray to the goddess and ask for the inspiration, not keep her locked up. He asks how Fry got her to give him what he wanted. She says she gave him nothing. He took it from her. She tells the story of the day when Erasmus Fry came upon her bathing and burned her scroll, taking her captive. Maddox begs her to help him, and she tells him to ask her again when she is free. Downstairs, Maddox still can't write. His agent calls and says the publisher wants their book now. If he doesn't produce something, the publisher will demand their advance back, and his agent will drop him. In his mind, Maddox hears Fry's justifications for the imprisonment and raping of Calliope, and Maddox goes upstairs. Next, we see Maddox writing away frantically downstairs, already on chapter three of his new book. In her room, Calliope calls upon the three and asks for their help. They visit her to tell her they cannot help her. She is lawfully bound. She asks if there's anyone who can help her, and they say the old gods are struggling themselves and dying out. Even the Endless are having a time of it although maybe Dream might help. They exposit the history. Calliope and Dream were a thing. It didn't end well. She had a son, Orpheus, who died in Hades. Calliope says she won't ask for help from Dream, and they say he couldn't help her if he wanted to. He has also been captured by humans. They leave her there, unable to help her. Fast forward a few years, and Maddox is hugely successful, attending a literary party where absolutely everyone is smug and full of shit, including Maddox himself. He says he's able to write authentically from the feminine experience because of the strong woman in his life, while the strong woman in his life stares out the window of her prison. A few more years goes by, and Maddox is about to drag Calliope to L.A. for the shoot of the movie version of his book, and then he gets mad at her for not enjoying their success. This is what she was made for, he says. And when she says she was born, not made, he gets a phone call and ignores her to talk about his new movie with the caller. She reads in the newspaper that people are waking from the sleeping sickness, and she knows that Dream is back. Maddock absently leaves the door open and goes into his office to continue his phone call. Calliope goes downstairs, grabs a marker, and writes Morpheus on a piece of paper, then calls for his help. Maddox catches her and asks who Morpheus is. She tells him it's the name of the god of dreams. 
He tells Calliope that she is his by law and the God of Dreams can't save her, then throws the paper into the fire. During an interview, Maddox discovers that Erasmus Fry died of suicide after writing a letter begging his publisher to re-release Here Comes a Candle. Upstairs, Dream shows up for Calliope. She asks him to inspire Maddox to release her, and Dream is going to do that and more. In a dream, Morpheus confronts Maddox and tells him to let Calliope go, but Maddox refuses. If he lets her go, he won't have any more ideas. Dream says if it's ideas he wants, then he'll have them. Maddox wakes up and demands that Calliope tell him what she has done. She says she didn't do anything. Maddox has met Morpheus, her ex-husband and father of her son, and he's pissed. At a book reading, Maddox starts talking about ideas, and they keep coming, one after the other. He can't stop them. He sees Morpheus at the back of the room and chases him out, ranting ideas as he goes. Later, the young doctor who gave Maddox the original bazaar finds him in the stairwell, his fingers mangled from writing ideas on the wall in his own blood. He tells her to take his keys, go to his house, and free the woman he has locked up in a room. He tells her to tell Calliope he is sorry. Horrified, she agrees and drags him out of the stairwell. The young doctor goes into Calliope's room and finds just a copy of Here Comes a Candle on the floor. Calliope isn't in there. She rushes out, not seeing Calliope in the living room. In shock, Calliope says it's over and thanks Morpheus for his help. He asks her what she's going to do now and she says she wants to make sure this never happens to anyone else ever again. She asks Morpheus to free Maddox because she must forgive what he has done for her own well-being. He agrees. At the hospital, the doctor returns to find Maddox struggling to remember Morpheus or Calliope. All he knows is that the ideas were all hers and now they're gone. Back at the house, Calliope suggests that she might visit Morpheus in the dream realm so that they can grieve their son, but he's not ready. She understands. She thanks him and wishes him well and leaves. Finally, a free woman after all this time. All right, Alisa, before we get started, I want to tell everybody that I managed to get a get in an interview with Joanna Robinson. Joanna Robinson is a podcaster with The Ringer. She also was a senior writer at Vanity Fair. Uh, she is doing a podcast now called House of the Dragon. For those of you who are watching the HBO Game of Thrones prequel, uh, you definitely want to go and check that out. She is brilliant, and she's a huge Sandman fan. So we're going to have a little discussion about that later on in the episode. Um, but for right now, Alisa, I want to know, what did you think? about uh, Dream of a Thousand Cats and Calliope. I think that pairing these two stories works so much better for me than I would have imagined because these were among my all-time favorite Sandman stories. And so to love them now that they've been combined and, you know, treated in a a slightly different way is surprising to me. But I love this. I love the way the, the... pairing of them highlights these themes of how the stories we tell about ourselves to ourselves and to others shapes the world. It mm-hmm. It's also to me, you know, two stories about the power of creativity, the mm-hmm. creativity to imagine the world other than it is, um, the, you know, your relationship to creativity and creating things and your responsibility to people in your life. Um, but obviously, these are very different stories. They both also explore the power dynamic in a, in in a, an intimate relationship where one uh, party has much more power. So it yeah. it 
you know, there are so many interesting resonances. And obviously, one is animated, one is not. I so much to say, so very much to say. And, you know, but how about you? How did it work for you? You know, it's so weird. Like when I first heard we got an extra episode, of course, I was very excited. Uh, Dream of a Thousand Cats, absolutely in it. Calliope was very difficult for me when we did the comic. So when I realized that this is what, you know, we were going to be doing, it was a little bit, I had a little hesitation going into it. Um, And the animation um, uh, and also like it's it's animated and it's live action. It is like 15, 20 minutes of the animated story and then like 45 minutes of the live action story. There is no reason why these should work together, right? But they do. They reflect these stories. They reflect the stories, but the power of creativity, the power of story um, and power dynamics in general and how they will create such toxicity in a relationship when they when that power is abused, right? And these are so much themes that I know resonate for you, Lonnie. Oh, yeah, absolutely they do. I mean, not in a um, good way always, but... Not, well, no, I mean, in an intro, like, these are things that you need to think about. Like, this is how the world works. You know, power is kind of the, you know, axle upon which the world turns, um, and it has caused a lot of problems. Um, but having a discussion within story about how power affects the powerless, because we spend our time in both of these stories really empathizing with the one who's getting screwed over by power. And the thing that's really interesting about Calliope is that it is her incredible power that put her in a position of powerlessness, um, which I find really, really uh, like an interesting, like crunchy way of like kind of flipping that, that Calliope represents power the way that it should be used. Power is asked, you know, like you ask for it and then receive it because they decide that, that, that you deserve it or whatever. Right. You know, that there is something about Calliope's power that doesn't do the harm that we see Erasmus Fry's power we see Maddox power, we see the power of the humans that own the Siamese cat that we see in those relationships where they don't think, they don't care about how this affects other people. Um, So yeah, like thematically, I think there's a lot of resonance in this. It is super weird. Um, But at the same time, I'm like, all right. And, you know, we're like, I think about it. I'm like, are these decisions that I ever would have made? Probably not. I probably wouldn't have done them together. Um, And I wouldn't have done like part of it shorter than the other and I wouldn't have done part of it animated and the other live action at the same time like that what that does is that makes me reflect on me and how into rules and and symmetry like perfect symmetry and like it would be half of one and half of another and that kind of thing um, that I am and how that actually might infringe upon my own creativity because I don't think I would have the courage to make those decisions. And I think that what it does is it creates a bold, unexpected place where you're kind of shaken out of your expectations and you're playing in this in this space to kind of like see what comes up. It's cool. I like it. I like it a lot more than I thought I was going to. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I was going to. A lot of that is due to some of the choices that were made. Um, but yeah, I really, I liked it. So as you're talking, I realized I, I had the opportunity to get together with Karen Berger and Neil Gaiman. It was, uh, I was at Comic-Con and and uh, mm-hmm. he's just been uh, inducted into the Harvey Hall of Fame. Uh, and Karen yeah, did congratulations, the Neil. inducting. Yeah. So anyway, I got mm-hmm. to hear... Um, Neil said something that was interesting. He said, you know, in comics, uh, he said to me, you knew how the sausage was made. And, you know, 
a little less so, obviously, a lot less so with with the TV. And as he was talking, I realized that a lot of the decisions, which maybe you or I wouldn't see ourselves making immediately, are decisions Mm -hmm. that potentially we could have made under certain circumstances, because I think that right. I, I was going to save some of this for Lucien's library. But you know what? I say screw, screw symmetry. I'm going to say some Who of this now. Who rules? I, exactly. Yes. So I will just say, I think that some of the decision making, which is very creative, mm-hmm. is, you know, is influenced by all kinds of factors, for example, and what we will mm-hmm. talk more about the visuals. The visuals, they be very expensive. It turns out that every yeah. time we see Matthew <laughs> the Raven, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, it, it it's just it's it's pricey in the way that nothing else is because yeah. of mm-hmm. all the effort that goes in. So I can only imagine that the dream of a thousand cats was, you know, a. Uh, 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 a Tribeca loft combined with a, you know, I don't know, yeah. Parisian, uh, uh, you know, like the, <laughs> right, exactly. it just, just, she had a tear. Yes, right, exactly. yes thank you. <laughs> um, so there, there's that aspect. And I think that if we were, you know, as, as novelists, we're constantly influenced by factors that, you know, people might not be aware of, such as, well, no right. one's mm-hmm. no one's buying a 50,000 word novel anymore. You have to write <laughs> longer or shorter, you know. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that there were those elements and the way they dealt with it to me is incredibly creative and, and positive. But but yeah, so I just wanted to say, luckily, maybe maybe with luck, at some point, you'll be in a situation where someone says, I'd like to, uh, you know, adapt this novel of yours. But at the same time, we want to combine it with this novel of yours. And you know what, like, honestly, this experience of Sandman, and I think that it comes from coming from comics, where, again, you're adapting from a different form. It may not be a decision you would have made if you had started telling this story and built it for television, right? But because you're adapting from comics and comics does have, um, there's so much efficiency and, and the stories are so tight. There's so much stuff going on. Nothing in a comic does only one job. Like mm. that's not how yes. comics work, right? You know, which I absolutely friggin' love, right? You know, um, and then you go into a TV show and you're like, all right, so how do we do this while being faithful to the comics? And, you know, when they did it with um, Men of Good Fortune and The Sound of Her Wings, right? When they combined those, it was so beautiful and so seamless. Here, I wouldn't necessarily call it seamless. We don't like have a warm transfer from one story into another. One of them's friggin' animated. You know, um, it's just they're so different. But yet these resonances about the nature of power, um, which was something that I did not see in the connection between the stories when we were doing them one by one in the comics, um, adds this like element of so like the bottom line of this is there are no rules in in writing and in storytelling. There are only principles. When the principles serve you, absolutely stick with them, because I think that there are reasons why those principles are there. But knowing when they don't and having the courage to be like, hey, you know what? We're going to do this different. Maybe it wouldn't have worked out. But if it didn't, it would still be an interesting failure. And I think the failures can also in themselves be interesting. I don't think that this is a failure. But if that's your worst case scenario is that you create an interesting failure, that's not so bad. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I I think that I mean, for me, this is very successful, but you don't get very successful without risking uh, failure 
It's you know otherwise yes. you're in that safe exactly. middle middle region. So since we're talking about animation, shall we talk a yes. little about the visuals? I did a little homework Let's here. Let's do it. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, I, you know, because I don't think I know enough on my own, but I <laughs> I love the animation. And when I started yeah. to look into how it was created, I thought, oh, this is why I love it so much. So Dutch mm-hmm. director and animator Hisko Hulsing, he made what I think are, are really great choices. He's known, I guess I, I saw in some of the interviews, and I think in our show notes, I've linked the interviews for people who want yes. to do a, a deeper dive. We will dive. have those links in the show notes, yes. Mm-hmm. So he was, his favorite animated film of all time is Bambi, which is uh-huh. so perfect. So he yeah. had, um, you know, first of all, the, the, the backdrops are these beautiful mm-hmm. painted backdrops. So you get that fine art, yeah. uh, uh, classic Disney kind of feeling. And then you've got the cats themselves, which were animated deliberately with realism, but not hyper-realism. So obviously with digital nowadays, you can animate to the point where you think that you're looking at a photograph uh, or or a a video image. They have chosen to keep this in a sweet spot of painterliness. And one of the things that works so very well for me is we are not lip-syncing. That was inspired by the comics. Uh, Lip syncing cats and dogs take me into uncanny valley in ways that I hate. (laughs) Yes. No, seriously. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. and so, you know, in the comic, we had word balloons without tails Mm -hmm. implying a kind Mm -hmm. of telepathy. And and so I think this worked really, really well. Um, I I just there were so many little things. Let's see. I'm just looking. In, in this, as opposed to the comic, we have a long-faced Siamese, uh, mm-hmm. which is an American, I believe, breeding uh, change that happened perhaps in the 80s or 90s. I love that they did that because it highlights, I think, the ways in which humans tend to exaggerate certain characteristics yeah. when they're breeding animals. It also makes her more distinctive. As in the comic, Sandman as a cat is much larger when as an yes. anthropomorphized character he's not larger than other humans but that makes sense to me because there's so much more divergence in feline body size right well plus if he remembers as the story says when cats were larger yeah he has access to that that his knowledge of that that his understanding of that actually would have an effect on that physical presentation i think makes perfect sense absolutely oh yes good good point um so i love that i loved the, the couple that's got the kitten, the woman, I think, is wearing Birkenstock sandals. Just such great little little choices. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's um, the bubbles that are rising up out of the water when. Oh, my God. When it's yeah. it's a it's both it, it's both literally what's happening, but it's also a metaphor for each of those little lives being snuffed out. And um uh, there are other little acting things, like at a moment when the Siamese uh, cat is is telling, um, and I I don't know is do we I guess I'm still saying Siamese cat. I feel a little mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a newer and less objectionable way of referring to these cats, <laughs> but uh, not that I know of. But if anybody out there is uh, knows of you know uh, better ways to refer to, but yeah, my understanding is that they're still called Siamese cats. Forgive yeah. me if I am stepping wrong. I will be corrected. But anyway, so the mm-hmm. the blue point uh, when she mm-hmm. is uh, when she is speaking. Uh, She's talking about her kittens, 
And the kitten who's listening, who's our, our main point of view character, gets this lick of comfort from the older cat that's that's next mm-hmm. to him. They were just Aww. wonderful choices, I think. I, I I like just the style of the of the animation. It's really, really wonderful. Um, I also wanted to point out that the um, in the audible version we had BB Newworth as the cat, as the the Siamese blue point. And um, she was amazing. Like first of all, BB Newworth in anything I'm in, I signed up. She is like <laughs> Lilith always to me, but like everything she does she's always amazing in everything um, and I absolutely adore her in this uh, we actually had Sandra Oh who Mm. is another actor who I love so dearly so even though I was a little bit sad because I wanted BB um, I'm excited that the audible version exists so I can have BB anytime I want but also get access to Sandra Oh playing this role um, which I think is absolutely wonderful and I think that she imbued it with exactly what I wanted from that role Uh, by the way anyone who has not seen The Chair on Netflix with Sandra Oh highly recommend that as well really really fun um, but I absolutely loved seeing Neil as the crow. Uh, the crow yes, was a the really fun character. Crow. The skull headed, the dead crow, right? Um, so Neil's acting and reading, like I've been listening to audiobooks, you know, I've been listening to his voice for a really long time. Um, and I do love the way that he delivers lines, oftentimes with writers. Um, and some of you may pick this up as being one of my shortcomings whenever I have to read a line from the show or from the comics when we're doing this. Elisa's showing me how it's done. And so I'm trying to pick up some tips from her. Um, but a lot of times writers are, are so like in their own heads with stuff that their acting will sometimes fall short, you know. Um, but I but Neil, I think, does like a really wonderful job. And if you know that he's Neil, if you know his voice, you know, you'll notice that in The Crow. You'll be like, I know that guy. Right. Um, but if you don't like he absolutely holds his space with all of these like incredible actors in this cast. I loved that. He always had it to so the first time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not that I met him. It was the second or third time I met him. So I was in England. I was um, Mm -hmm. engaged. I happened to be in England. So I met up with Neil, went back to his house. His kids were little. And I ended up going into the bedroom as he was reading them a bedtime story. And I remember that um, his daughter, Holly, was whispering. and, And Neil said, now, children, I'm going to be, you know, reading. And he had, you know, there he was still, I think, maybe... 29 at the time, maybe 30. And he still had this very commanding, wonderful, rich narrative voice. So it's, uh, but I I got to hear him way back, way back when I guess he was training on his kids. And I would say that the main key to reading your stuff well is not to be, again, not to be afraid to make a mistake and ham it up a little. I think, you know, Mm -hmm. there's that modern form of reading poetry, which is, I think that I shall never see a poem. (laughs) Lovely. As you know, you're sort of flattening everything out. Right. Don't Mm -hmm. do that. Yeah, that's what I mean. They're like, I really, really love audiobooks. Um, and for the last five or six years, I haven't been able to actually like sit down and read printed books. So I've been listening to audiobooks and it's been hugely helpful for me. Um, and one of the things that like really throws me out is when you have these readers who are, they're very professional. They sound very professional. They're very clean. They're very like, you know, they have like this perfect audiobook voice, but it doesn't have the personality. And when I can find an audio, 
audiobook that is read by the author. Even an author who is like not a great actor, I think there's something about it sounding like a real person mm. who is reading the audiobook that like I really wish that we would kind of like move back into that because there are some amazing like really good actors who are out there doing audiobooks. Um, and so the actors will do them really well uh, The because they'll bring that acting to them like Lenny Henry in Anansi Boys, which is honestly my favorite audiobook reading ever. I will listen to that over and over and over again. Um, but, you know, I, I, I wish the, the, the like narration sometimes would not be so flat because I find that really hard to follow, you know, and I'd rather have a, a you know, a person who is not made to do narration do it because it sounds more real. Oh, so what you're saying is also making me think about the sound. You started to talk about the sound in the production. And in the comic, you know, we end cats with the cat kind of, you know, something in its dream. And it's I just mm-hmm. I just made little paw motions, which I realized little paw not, motions. So, not so useful in the podcast. Um, That's all right. But in the in the TV, we end with this crunch, this mm-hmm. marvelous hideous crunch that evokes the crunch <laughs> of the a giant cat eating the human. And, the human, um, yeah. and I just thought that was wonderful, wonderful sound work, as, as you've been pointing out. Yeah, the sound work on this show has been really incredible. Uh, one of the things, though, that you brought up in your notes, which I thought was so interesting, is talking about kind of the evil of inaction and the complicity of doing nothing. Right. Because uh, we have the the female owner of the Siamese um, kind of reflecting Clarice, um, you know, Jed's foster mom. And I thought that was such an interesting thought. Well, you know, I think that we are looking at power in relationships. Mm-hmm. And while Clarice more clearly is being a uh, 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 She's she's what's the word? She's she's uh, not just submissive, but she's being herself the victim. Yeah. So she she, we we assume Mm -hmm. that she is also the victim. Um, Yeah, uh, it it, it is. It is implied, I think, in the text, Uh, whereas it's not so clear with this woman who is is the, the owner of the Siamese. It's more. I think the way it is presented is that way in which if you let yourself know what is happening, then you would have to act or yeah. or accept your the level to which you're complicit in violence mm-hmm. or in cruelty. Right. And so she refuses to fully acknowledge what she clearly does know, which is what her male partner is doing with those kittens. And I think that this this exploration of a variant of uh, you know of mm-hmm. the 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 more passive partner is an interesting one i'm also going to mention something i you know sometimes i'll see things on twitter and i'll think about responding and then i'll think i'm frightened of twitter twitter is a savage <laughs> twitter is like the dark alley in the sandman where yeah. i often fear to go but i'm gonna say this so somebody pointed out that all the adult black men in mm-hmm. in sandman are either demons or they're dead or they're evil or they're mm-hmm. and i thought to myself you know this is a universe which is a dark fantasy universe so mm-hmm. i i think that you are not as you have said various times, anyone who is 
what did you say? Written as human, reads as human, you know, you are... It's coded as human. Coded yeah. as human. So yeah. I would say that, for example, Hector is a major character who is a good black man. And the fact that he is dead is really besides the point in, in this schema. Um, and And so I think that you can always fault a work of fiction for what it is not. But I think more than many works of fiction, this explores lots of different facets. So we look at this form of powerlessness and then this form mm -hmm. of powerlessness. I would disagree that that is a, a major critique that I would level against this, this work. But there I was. I was too scared to do it on Twitter. So I'm <laughs> doing it here. Well, here's the thing. It is a critique I would level at us as a culture. And, you know, our stories reflect us sure. back at ourselves. And sometimes that reflection is fucking unflattering, right? Mm. Um, but the problem really isn't an individual story that happens to do this. The problem is the number of stories that do these things. Asking the questions, noticing the patterns, and asking the questions I think is super, super important. But I see the critique as being a critique of a culture in which this happens a lot. Um, and that this particular instance of it in and of itself, you know, I think Hector was awesome. I think that there's lots of representation. And that is usually the problem is that we don't have any positive representation. We will have like one black man and then we see this happen. We'll have one gay person dead. Right. You know, um, and uh, and that happens a lot, I think, in the culture. So I do feel that it is really important that we always ask the question. I also think that what we are actually critiquing is not an individual story, but rather patterns in our culture and in ourselves. And the important thing that stories do is they give us a chance to look inward, look at ourselves and ask ourselves that question. So those are really important questions for everybody mm, to ask yes. themselves. But I also think that any story that places first and foremost that they never um, never do anything that any culture at any particular time that somebody might feel is wrong. Like, you know, I have, I've been working with my therapist, just to go a little personal, I've been working with my therapist on this like fucking people pleasing stuff that I've picked up from trauma in childhood, right? You know, and that fucking like, I guess a modifier. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, but the thing is, is that like if you if you go through life trying to please everyone, you will please no one. So yes, sometimes these things are going to be in stories, and yes, they are worthy of note. But I think that what we really need to look at is ourselves, and that it gives us that reflection. But the critique is really of ourselves. Um, I think more so than the than the product itself. And the person on Twitter, if you have something to say to talk back about this by all means you found us before you can find us again we will be happy to uh, to have that discussion but don't be too scary please <laughs> oh <laughs> um, all right no that was just a, an attempt to not be yes no and i i, I yeah, think no, i get it mm -hmm. i think that one of the things i do admire about sandman is how it doesn't just level its critical gaze outward at what's wrong yes. with the world and people who have more mm -hmm. power a lot of the uh, a lot of the look of, of the critical look is inward. So I, yeah. I had a little note about the ethics of animal husbandry. There's a book I love called Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat, which is uh -huh. about our complicated relationship with animals and the animal world. Right. And I think that, um, you know, I discovered that in uh, traditional Judaism, you there are things you can't do to animals. You're supposed to 
behave ethically towards the animals in your in mm-hmm. your keep. And one of the things you're not supposed to do is uh, castrate or or neuter your animals. Now, mm-hmm. I I have wound up doing that, but I thought it was an interesting thing that the pendulum swings back and forth about whether this is something that we should do right away to animals. Um, if you go to the ASPCA, they neuter at uh, three, four months, which we yeah. now know it may be good at animal control, but it's also not as good for the individual. It will it means that the hormones that go into full bone growth never never come into play. The animal itself right. is not as healthy. And I think I get uncomfortable often when I think about the ethics of animal husbandry. And I'm a meat eater. I try to eat, I, I usually joke, I try to eat meat that died happy. But, right. you know, if you dig a little doubt into that, it's not, uh-huh. it's not so comfortable. But, but beyond the animals, obviously, uh, you know, these stories are also exploring the, the uh, ethics of, of writing. And I want to say that I, I've heard more than one writer admit that there's a little savage scavenger side to us because, you know, I, I just heard a really horrific story recently that happened, you know, really to someone uh, who's a, a friend of my daughter's. Mm-hmm. And most of me was just appalled and horrified. Um, it was it was a, a wild, I mean, not wild, but feral dogs attacked her. And oh, then, God. you know, there is, it is absolutely a horrible story. She's okay. Um, but, yeah, good. But, but uh, then there is the part of you as a writer that says, oh, that's, that's going into the into the the That's... toolbox, and it is yeah. it's an uncomfortable. I'm 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 saying this in a slightly joking way, but it's an uncomfortable. I think we try and often take our own pain and turn it into something else and transform it. But you know, there's a little Rick Maddock in in me as well. I take sometimes other people's pain and and run it through my my you know whatever it is that you're, you're you yeah, know the grinder sure, that then becomes right. your story. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know. So did you have any do you, did you have any moments of thinking, "Oh, Rick Maddock, I am you too." Oh, I mean as a writer, sure. Like there's the terrifying moment when you're staring at a blank page, you know, and um and you can't get through and you don't know what to do. And the thing is that if you think too much like on the meta level about the writing, you know, like if you think about writing as writing rather than writing a story that you're telling and you're in the story, um you get in your own head, uh nothing flows that well it all becomes a big mess and it grinds to a halt and um the big thing that i tell people and the way that i deal with that is just write crap like go in with the intention of writing something that is truly fucking terrible like that is my personal key that really works for me to help me get through it because the source of my fear is that i'm going to write something i'm going to say something that somebody on twitter is going to be like yeah that's not that's not good you know you've hurt people or harmed people by writing this thing Mm. Um, or that I you know here I am I teach writing I teach people like how to structure a story what if I structure something badly you know like what if I do something that you know here I am like spending all this time critiquing other writers which is how I learn because I look at other stories I take them apart it's like a mechanic looks at a car takes it apart learns how it works like that's what I do at the same time I'm like all right I am do some shit man from people when I you know get back into this you know 
know. Um, so I think that there's a lot of things that absolutely, you know, will kind of like stop you dead as a writer. Um, but pulling in other people's stories, being Ooh. inspired by something that happens to somebody else, I think is absolutely like a part of that. It, we are. We are meaning scavengers. We are scavengers of meaning. We grab little bits of meaning that happen. Of course, stories generate meaning, right? Um, and the meaning is the currency of the universe, right? That's how it all works. Um, and so we go in and we scavenge these little bits of meaning. Now, ideally, we do it even when we're talking about somebody else's experience with sensitivity, you know, and with consideration. And we think about it while we're doing it. But I mean, yeah, like one, like, what is it George R. R. Martin says, like, you know, a man who a reader lives a thousand lives, a man who doesn't read lives only one, right? You know, um, and I think that like we as writers need to live all of those lives as well. And we can't do it just in what we've got in our personal experience. Yes. And, you know, and and so with when this story was first written in the late 80s, early 90s, mm-hmm. I think there was beginning to be a discussion about can a man really tell a woman's story? Now, of course, yeah. we've gone further. And, you know, the positive thing is own voices. We should mm-hmm. all be reading, you know, not just more diverse stories, but more diverse yes. writers. And on mm-hmm. the other hand, you know, who gets to tell what story, you know, it, if, if I only populate my world with middle-aged, uh, you know, Jewish women, then it's, 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 well, then it's guilt. No, no, I, I went a little wider than that. No, but you that's know. guilt. That's G-I-L-T, a comic book series written by Elisa Quitney, available at comic book stores near you. Yes, please continue, Elisa. <laughs> but, you know, so it's, the question that is um, embedded in Calliope, which is mm-hmm. who gets to tell what story, is is a really interesting one. And I know you've got a whole a whole bit. Uh, maybe this is a good segue into can you separate the art from the artist? Yeah, I mean, that's the question that we get with Richard Maddock and some of the stuff. I, I discussed this a little bit in the interview with Joanna and Joanna has some thoughts on this as well. But like you get this guy who is performing all of the, you know, like required wokeness. Right. But he's doing it for the wrong reasons. You know, we see him like, oh, no, we need to have women. We need to have diversity, yada, yada, yada. But it is not about having people who are telling their own stories and bringing their perspective. It's about ticking a box so I look good. You know, Mm. so Richard Maddock, and I mean, here's the thing, too, is that Richard Maddock is getting all of these ideas and all of this inspiration, but they are not his, right? They were not, he was not chosen to carry these stories, right? He demanded them. He stole them. These are stories and inspirations that Calliope might have bestowed upon different writers to tell those stories had she had the option, but she didn't. So she was forced to give them to Richard Maddock and he is telling stolen stories. And I think that that in itself is really, you know, kind of of an interesting like angle on all of that. But here we have like one of the things about this story that Richard Maddock, especially when he started talking about like strong female characters, because of the mm. strong women in my life. That resonated very deeply with me with Joss Whedon. Now, um, those of you who are aware, I did, you know, uh, Still Pretty, which was um, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, It's Still Dead, which was on Angel the Series, also written by Joss Whedon. I have learned a lot from Joss Whedon. I've been studying his work for a really, really long time. Um, but when all of this stuff came out about what kind of actual human Joss really is, um, you know, for me, like, I had to do some more 
homework and ask myself some questions about, you know, do I do I still get to love these stories? Do I still do these stories still get to speak to me? In the end, I decided yes, because Joss Whedon was not the only one writing them. He was not the one acting in them. He was not the one bringing them to like there was thousands of people working on that, those shows between them, you know, um, and all of them brought something to those stories. And so I feel safe, you know, loving them. But every time I hear Joss Whedon or I look read an old you know, interview where he's like, oh, the strong women in my life. You know, when I when Richard Maddox said that, I was like, I just wanted to smack him, you know, because he's talking about the strong women in my life, one of which he's got locked in a room in his house. Like, it's so disgusting. Yes. And I think in, you know, to go from the specific to the general, I think the problem comes when we get locked into just one story we tell ourselves about ourselves that, you know, we we are all actually a multitude of characters. And so if you think of yourself as the nerd outsider wanting to be part of the popular group, which is was, mm-hmm. I think, Joss Whedon's origin story that resonates yes. in a lot mm-hmm. of his work, then you miss the point at which you become powerful and now you are also, you know, you are also someone else. So I, I love when I rewatch this, I found, I found all these great things. One of uh, the things I loved is in the beginning when uh, Maddox is teaching his class. Mm-hmm. Do, do you remember what the assignment was? Oh, no, I don't. What was it? Tell the same story from two different points of view. <laughs> Isn't that perfect? Wow. Perfect. I mean, Absolutely perfect. Um, But again, like, you know, we see like how incredibly full of shit he is. Now, that said, you know, if the work is good, Mm. like and the work speaks to you and you can still engage with it and get something out of it, like the work is one thing. And then the person who created the work is another thing. And people can be two things at once. I think that is the hardest thing to really wrap your head around is that Joss Whedon, like for instance, for example, can be a person with very, very severe personal issues that need to be worked through and can have done some really, really terrible things. Um, But also at the same time can be an incredible writer who wrote amazing things that people found very touching and that changed their world. Other people may have these same issues with, um, you know, like Orson Scott Card was a problem. Uh, J.K. Rowling is a problem. Like all of these things. T.S. Eliot. There you go. I mean, uh, uh, people are complicated. There are many things at once. And um, the knee jerk, you know, response that like, I'm a good person if I boycott this work as opposed to, I am going to be a person who doesn't do the things that this person did. I'm going to be a person who puts goodness out into the world. Like, you know, my boycotting something doesn't make anybody's day better, but my being a decent human being can. And that's really what you learn from these things. So like, yes, it's complicated. People are more than one thing at once. And saving space for complexity can be very, very difficult. We get ourselves into a state of cognitive dissonance that makes us feel really uncomfortable. Discomfort is your best friend. Sit in it. It will teach you so much. Oh, God, I love that. Okay, so so wait, I, I'm like darting all around, but I was realizing That's I right. wanted to yeah. ask you a question that came out of this, uh, and I, I wrote myself a note about it, which is, oh, yes. okay, mm-hmm. so we've got this great character who's not in the comic, the doctor, who wants to be yes. a writer, but she became something, she's becoming something practical. She gets mm-hmm. into the bizarre, 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 bizarre. I think. I don't know. Yeah. You say bizarre. And anyway, um, <laughs> so you've got yet another instance of a real woman in, in Maddox's life who is he's, mm-hmm. you know, treating uh, transactionally, 
but uh, and and not not actually giving much back. But what I was thinking is, and I thought this in the '90s too. How would this story be different if it was written about a female writer? It is so much, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, the, the pen is penis, and mm-hmm. you know, because he, we have a heterosexual right. cisgender male writer. And mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know what I can assume about Calliope, <laughs> but, you know, it, 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 it evokes a very classic male-female dynamic of power to powerlessness. And I was thinking, so what could you have this kind of a story in the same way if you have the woman writer? And in Game of You, we explore a, a woman who is creative, a, a rock star and a songwriter, and she also gets morally compromised and continues mm-hmm. to examine herself. So I, I think, but I just was thinking about that particular dynamic. Could Would the muse ever be male? Are all our muses female? And I, I, I think I'm rambling right now, but I'm remembering <laughs> that Stephen King talked about the boys in the basement as yep. the, mm-hmm. the muses. And I know I first came to it from Jenny Cruzy talking about the girls right. in the basement. Right. And mm-hmm. I, you know, and I was realizing that I am not always kind to my own muse. You know, I'm sometimes mm-hmm. saying, produce, damn you. Just <laughs> shut up and give me something, you know. But yeah. All right. So how would it change? Could, you know, would would you ever lock your muse in an attic. Uh, would I ever lock my muse? I, I certainly hope that I would not, right? But of course, that option isn't available to me. And as, as arrogant as we all like to be about what our moral choices would be given the opportunity, you don't know until you're in the situation. I would hope that I would not. I think that I would not. Um, that said, I think that women have just as much uh, propensity toward, um, you know, selfishness and smallness and cowardice and cruelty as anybody else. Anybody who has power um, has the, you know, opportunity to be corrupted by it. Because we live in a patriarchal society, because we live in a world in which men have held the power and have consolidated that power, um, and it has corrupted some of them, right? Um, that we tend to tell these stories from a male perspective. But I think that one of the things that is a really interesting, um, like practice, and for all the writers out there who want to do this, like take your favorite fairy tale and gender flip it. Like, Like, you know, what if it was a a man who pricked his finger and fell asleep and then was woken by a kiss from true love or whatever? Um, How would the, you know, the female character, how would that work out? Or also, everything doesn't have to be so goddamn heteronormative all the time. Like, take two men, take two women, put them in that same situation and see what comes up. And what will happen is that you'll have some interesting stories to tell, but you also, once again, these stories are a mirror. The stories we tell mirror us back at ourselves. The things that we want to talk about, the themes that we want to we want to go into, they talk about the things that are that we are struggling with. So, like you know, stories are everything. Like this is the reason why I've dedicated my life to them. They are everything. And every story you read, every story you tell, the way that you react to it, it is all a mirror. It is all about you. It is all therapy. It is all wonder. It is awe. It is amazing. You learn so much from the stories that we tell. Um, so like my my thing is gender flip, uh, hetero flip, that. flip everything, orientation flip, flip everything, race flip, flip everything and see what comes up for you and how that affects the way the story is told. It will give you a fresh way to look at things and it will also tell you something about yourself. I, I really like that. So Warren Farrell 
was a uh-huh. family friend. I grew up with him. He um, wrote The Myth of Male Power. Uh, I know that he is now somewhat controversial because he was some, one of the first men, public men, who, to uh, call himself a feminist and then switched mm-hmm. away and talked about the ways in which uh, our society demonizes men. And mm-hmm. I am a feminist, but I want to just read one little quote um, that, you know, Warren talks about the demonizing of men and masculinity and the essence of traditional masculinity, I'm paraphrasing actually, but is being socialized to be a hero by being willing to sacrifice oneself in war or in work. And the possibility that being socialized to be disposable is not genuine power is to this day either considered radical, heretical, or more frequent, or most frequently not considered. And so mm-hmm. I, I like to bring that up when I'm thinking from the male perspective, because we we do treat men's bodies as more disposable. There's that classic mm-hmm. Titanic question that to be a good man, even if you're a young man, you should sacrifice your body for, you know, an mm-hmm. old woman. And as the mother of a son, I, I think, would I want my, you know, w- you know, young, you know, wh- why do we consider that that men's bodies are so disposable? It is just another thing to maybe investigate in the culture and in ourselves. Absolutely. I mean, and here's the thing, again, like things can be two things at once. Yes, yes. Men have a lot of power in this society. They have the power to make money. They have the power to sometimes physically overpower people who are weaker and women tend to, oh, on, on the whole, physically be smaller and a little, you know, not quite as strong um, as men. And so like even just from that physical standpoint, men are imbued with a certain amount of power. Is there a flip side to that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, And here's the thing, like the patriarchy is a system, right? So you can dislike the patriarchy and still love men. I love men, you know, (laughs) like some of my some of my favorite people are some of my best friends are men. Right. You know, Um, I live with one right now and I absolutely adore him. Um, But the thing is, is that, yes, like the patriarchy is a system that hurts everybody, even as it imbues certain powers onto one group. It also does a lot of damage to the people in that group having power is not everything in being human and you are shunned shunned away by societal ideals into this like you know can't talk about emotions can't do all this stuff i see a lot of men coming back from that and like really healing now and it is one of the most beautiful things in the world i love it and it's it's not always power i think about the young Mm -hmm. men right now in um in in Russia, you know, who yeah. are being drafted men who are maybe mm-hmm. did, you know, just some minor crime or who, you know, uh, are completely unprepared and being sent off to war. So sorry, I don't mean to be political here. But I and, and uh, before, yeah. I do want to run out of time because I have very important <laughs> things to talk about a silk dress. Oh, a silk dress. So let's talk about a silk dress. So, um, we we haven't talked about the visuals in Calliope. And right. Yes. I wanted to get your take as well. But I was thinking about how in the comic, Calliope is nude. And mm-hmm. in this, uh, she is wearing a silk dress that is obviously easier to, to deal with, you know, in terms of ratings and everything than having her mm-hmm. actually be naked. And it's a beautiful mm-hmm. silk dress. But it evokes yeah. nudity and vulnerability. And I was thinking about this and I was thinking about the changing 
attitudes about um, vulnerability and dress because I was on the subway in New York City and there were two young French women. And one was dressed, you know, it was a, it was a crisp day, maybe 60 degrees. And uh, one of them was wearing a jacket. And I can't remember what else she was wearing. It was chic. The other was wearing a silk dress, not dissimilar to what Calliope is wearing. But uh-huh. as it was not expertly, you know, fitted mm-hmm. by a, a costume department, you know, I could see her nipples. It was chilly. And I ha- was having all of these feelings about, why are you walking around like this? You look like you're naked in the subway, and I want uh-huh. to cover you and protect you. And I was mm-hmm. thinking about how women's clothing and women's sexuality is such a loaded issue. And I still yeah. come from a generation in which we were taught that it wasn't right that our clothes could you know, make us more vulnerable, but it, that it was a reality. Right. And right. Yeah. I just, I wanted to, so I just thought about the fact that there is this slip dress, which is so perfectly uh, suited to the actress's body. It is flattering and yet vulnerable. At no point do I see, you know, butt crack or or nipple, which might over-sexualize her, but it it expresses that sensuality, purity, you know, all of these mm-hmm. choices and how it it, it, it just seemed a, a perfect, both a perfect costume choice and also a do not try this at home because uh, right. that, that is not what silk dresses ever look like <laughs> on people <laughs> in reality. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I, I love the way that the silk dress gives us the vulnerability of the nakedness without the camera coming in with this very male gazy opportunity to um, to overly sexualize, um, you know, Calliope as a character. Uh, again, like some of the things in the comics, I found truly deeply, deeply disturbing, mm. you know, and it was really difficult for me. And so one of the things Joanna and I talk about this a little bit in our discussion that I was so grateful for um, in this episode is that. Uh, we allowed that to be implied and yet not shown that we allowed her to be vulnerable in the silk shift and yet not naked and devoured and therefore, you know, the the purpose of, of seeing a naked lady on TV, that we didn't lean into that the way that we have in our stories in the past. And when I say we, again, mirror reflection, culture, it's always about us, right? Um, that this is something that, that I felt was beautifully done without sacrificing what we need from the story, what we need Calliope to be experiencing, while at the same time feeling her vulnerability. I also loved that throughout this whole experience, 60 years with Fry, I don't know how many, 510 with Maddox, and that silk dress was always perfectly white it was never marred they never got her soul like that's yes, the thing we never that see i really loved about her that. you know we like never that see we never see it choice. ripped we don't see it damaged we don't see it dirty yes. it doesn't get a smudge on it her soul is intact the core of her the vulnerability yes. of her remains intact because of her strength as a character i loved it and i can't wear a white shirt for two minutes without getting ink and oh, avocado God, no. on it 
Oh, God, no. I have coffee stain on the boob of every shirt I have, which is why I always wear black, because, Jesus, I'm just tired of it. Black you know, shows, but she manages, I need yeah. I need to be like a pattern so that it hides the... Oh, so it can blend in with the pattern. That's also really good, too. Yeah, those are those are some good anti-stain choices, oh, yes. Oh, and Lonnie, Lonnie, the yes. gifts. The <laughs> gifts. Okay, can we talk about whoever did yeah. the art direction? Who Who is involved with the props, the props? So when Maddox yeah. is trying to woo her with gifts, they are the cheesiest home shopping network the perfume bottle this is my understanding of what a woman women like this right you know it's some stinky ass perfume you know it's bad yes opium (laughs) or something forgive me if people loved opium it was a very heavy yes, set. Yes, exactly. You can you can love what you love. Everybody has different reactions to scents. But yeah, that's exactly it. Like here he is. He doesn't even know her. Like and yeah. and that is so beautifully expressed. Yes. Everything that Maddox does is surface. And I absolutely love that about the way that he is represented is that he is just a surface dude. Like he is trying to look good. He is more interested in looking good than actually being good. Um and the thing is that I find so complicated. Yes, let's step into this cognitive dissonance is that here we have Arthur Darville, Rory. It's Rory from uh, from Doctor Who, which I absolutely, I loved him so much as that character. And I'm so invested in him as a good guy. And Arthur Darville is somebody who can walk into a frame, say nothing, do nothing. Instantly, you love him. He is everything. I love him so much. So to see somebody I love separate the art from the artist, right? Like, here he is, this incredibly likable guy doing these disgusting, disgusting things, being just a reprehensible human, right? Um, And yet, like, I find myself every time I see him, I'm like, oh, like, I love him so much. And I don't know, I think it is essential to Arthur Darville, whether you've seen Doctor Who or not. But if you have seen Doctor Who, bringing that extra textual, oh, my God, I love him so much to this was such a wonderful, complicating crunch in this story. Like, typically, I don't like to talk about the extra textual stuff. You know, Um, but you do bring it in. You live in a world like extra textual stuff gets in. Um, And that was one of the things for me that I felt like that casting choice was just so chef's kiss perfect. Okay, so I also then have to talk about Erasmus Fry, who's played by, I forgot to look at Derek. uh, What's his name? Um, He was in I, Claudius back in the 70s. He has always played older characters. It looks like he hasn't aged in 30, 40 years. Yeah, um, just hit a point and that's wonderful, it. Yeah. Wonderful. Settled actor. in. Oh, mm-hmm. so before I forget, I can yes. I have So as I was watching Calliope and mm-hmm. the fact that she doesn't give the only thing that is hers to retain, which is she's not going to give even the appearance of her consent. You can't really give consent to sex if you're powerless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But she could she could give him the cover of her saying okay and uh, and Mm -hmm. she refuses and it reminded me of a story that my grandmother told me uh Mm -hmm. which i never understood as a child so my grandmother grew up in guess what's now ukraine uh the town was Mm -hmm. brestichka or Mm berestichka the cossacks came in and they told her and her friend they were little girls at the time Mm -hmm. they had to dig up a whole field of potatoes and give the potatoes to the Cossacks. So they, the girls mm-hmm. were, were forced to do this. And then at the end, uh, they said, you can take some of the potatoes for yourselves, bring them home to your family. And my grandmother's friend took 
And my grandmother refused. And as a kid, I didn't understand. And I, I, I felt awful thinking, I, I remember saying, but why wouldn't you just take a few? You were so poor. And she was, and I, I this today, as I was rewatching that scene with Calliope, um, refusing to give the cover of consent for my grandmother to take the potatoes would have been to let the Cossacks think that what they had done was not so evil to right. force two little girls to, to, to work for them. And, mm. uh, and so I thought I, I, I just wanted to tell everyone that, uh, I, I finally got the story. <laughs> so uh, I just felt a little, that's an incredible story. And as a child to have that understanding of it, you know, is, is really remarkable. So, uh, she sounds like an amazing woman and, uh, what a story to be able to carry with you. And that's again, like, you know, you'll watch something like this and it will open up a space for you. Um, and that's the, the magic that stories do. I mean, for me, like uh, what I struggled with, and I'm just going to go ahead, like we have already done everything in Lucianne's library. We've already done everything. We'll come in after this with the interview with Joanna and then we'll go right into the, the end and that'll be fine. But... Oh, but I want to mention cabinets of Dr. Caligari. Yes. No, yes, yes, okay. yes. We will. We will do all of that. But anyway, um, <laughs> so no, bouncing up and down. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, no, but the thing that I, that reflected in this story for me was this idea of forgiveness. She says, I will not forgive what he has done, but I must forgive the man, right? Mm. And the thing is, like anybody who's followed me for a while knows that I have a struggle with forgiveness, not in general terms, but when somebody does something like really, truly awful and they are not sorry, like forgiveness just doesn't feel on the table for me. And so when she said this, because here was somebody who had done something really, truly awful to somebody who had done something really, truly awful, right? And was getting the poetic justice, right? Yeah. But the thing is that the turning point between justice and vengeance is a sharp turn, right? It is It is a very sensitive dial. Um, and at this point, she says, no, let him go. I cannot forgive what he has done, but I must forgive the man. And as I'm watching this, that resonated with me so, so deeply. Um, and I still struggle with it. But the thing is, like, that moment in this story, forgiveness is not the main theme of this story. There's so much other stuff, I mean, mostly about power. And yet here is this moment that I look at it and I'm like, that resonates with me. And this is why stories are therapy. That resonates with me. Yes. Why does that resonate with me? Why am I resisting this idea? Why, when she says that, I'm like, fuck no, Calliope, make him suffer. You know, and she doesn't <laughs> do it, right? But in the end, isn't that the better thing for her? Like she is prioritizing herself. And um, by not being a party to something that hurts somebody else, even though that is a person who had hurt her. Um, and I find that such an interesting thing. I'm going to be wrestling with that. I'm going to be taking that into my therapy sessions. But I absolutely loved that. And I think that, like, you know, understanding the difference between I forgive you and what you did is okay is really essential to that part of the healing process. So anybody else who struggled with that? You know, go ahead, give it a thought, do some work with it. I think there's some interesting stuff there. All right, bring us to the cabinets of Dr. Caligari. So I just had to say, I I was thinking, oh, wait, I know that title. And mm -hmm. it was, I think the, so this must be a retelling uh, or, or something because the original cabinet of Dr. Caligari was written by, reading from my notes, Hans Janowitz <laughs> and Carl Mayer, both of whom were pacifists uh, when they met following World War One. 
And there is some weird, it's about, uh, what is it? It's about a hypnotist and there's strange murders. And um, I think one of them died unexpectedly in 1920 at the age of 23. So there's wow. there's all kinds of weirdness. It's a silent film as well. So I didn't have a chance to do the entire deep dive, but I will try and watch uh, the the silent film of Cabinet of Dr. Caligari uh, Ooh, that'll before be we before we come back. All right, that's it. that was my whole big <laughs> Lucien's library. I love it. I love it. There was so much great stuff here. Uh, but now we're going to go ahead and break for my discussion with the amazing and wonderful Joanna Robinson. If you're enjoying Endless, the Sandman podcast, then you should know that it is only through our Patreon supporters that we are able to produce this content for you. So we'd like to take this moment to thank everyone who supports us at patreon.com slash chipperish. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish patrons who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. Thank you to our power producers, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. All Chipperish supporters get access to the Chipperish Discord chat, where you can pop in, meet other Sandman fans, and chat with the Chipperish creators. And at $10 a month and up, you can even attend live tapings for some of our shows. Thank you to our intrepid editor, Jack Cram, whose time and skill is paid for through your support. If you'd like to support Endless and Chipperish Media, please visit patreon.com chipperish and support us today. All right. So Joanna Robinson. Oh, my God. I'm such a big fan. I'm so glad that you're here with us. Thank you so much for coming here to talk about Sandman with me. You're not a fan. Like, we're, you're my pal. We're pals. That's how I consider. <laughs> I mean, I'm a huge fan of yours. But also, Aww. I, you know, we've been through the fandom trenches together. I feel like we're pals. That is very I'm true. so excited that to be here. That is very true. And, and you, know, you know this, and Elisa knows this, but I am, like, obsessed with this podcast. I've been listening to it obsessively. Uh-huh. have learned so so much from you guys talking about both the comic and the show. So um, I was begging mm-hmm. you to come like talk to you about Sandman. So thank you for letting me come. I appreciate it. Oh, man, you have an open invitation to show up on a Chipperish podcast anytime you want, anyone you want. Always, always open door for Joanna Robinson. Okay, so uh, tell me, like, what is your history with Sandman? When did you get into it? Yeah, it's not a, a, a I wish I could say. From my youth. Yes. Um, but no, it's, um, I don't know, eight years ago, thereabouts to maybe 10 or something like that. A, mm-hmm. um, I wasn't like a huge comic reader as a kid, um, mm-hmm. but a, you know, my best friend and then um, the guy I was seeing both were desperately trying to get me into comic books. And they were like, we know what will get Joanna. Neil, Because they knew I love Neil Gaiman's work. And so they were like, well, you love Gaiman's fiction. Why haven't you read Sandman? It's so foundational to understanding like Gaiman's overall ideas of story and stuff like that. So, you know, and they're like, oh, Shakespeare's in it. Like all this other stuff, you'll like it. Um, And uh, yeah, and it got me uh, for sure. And then I read all of it and I have such a sense memory of, um, I know you're relatively new to comic books as well, but like uh, I mm. get these like strong sense memories of reading comic books and I've read a ton since I've gotten really into comic books since, but this was like my gateway drug for sure. And um, I just remember I had physical copies of the first few issues and then I just like couldn't wait and just, you know, got it all on my tablet and was reading it on my tablet. And I just like remember being just like, hold up just voraciously devouring like the entirety of the Sandman and just 
getting completely lost in the world. And I just, I absolutely, I loved it. And it cracked open comics for me. So yeah, I have a huge affection for Sandman. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. You know, as you know, if you've listened to the podcast, uh, I've, I've read some comics, but like Sandman is the first time that I went in and like read them in a literary way where I'm paying attention to every little detail. And it has absolutely opened up comics for me in a million other ways. And I think that it is definitely like it is an access point for people who don't think that they like comics to learn how much they're going to love comics through these stories and through that incredible artwork. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I'm I'm cur- I'll be so curious, and uh, maybe you have some anecdotal evidence of this, but I'll be so curious if people who checked out the Netflix show because I don't know, Gwendolyn Christie's in it or something like that or it just looked cool or they liked Good Omens, they like other Neil Gaiman TV or film that they've seen and then they want to know more and maybe they'll pick up a comic book if they never have and then maybe you know it'll just it'll convert a ton of new people to comics and that would be a really beautiful thing but i love the way that you and Elisa have been talking about the artwork it's really helped me better understand a lot of the technique and a lot of um because it is a whole entire piece it's not just story the visuals are so key I mean that's a dust statement but like you know it's just it's so potent in this particular story and the way watching the Netflix series and the way in which uh it's matching the art or, or the way in which it's not because there's things you can do in a comic that you can't do on the screen it's been mm-hmm. very interesting it is really fun to see like the different formats and to talk again like about adaptation um so as we talk about the netflix series i mean what as a fan of the comic books somebody who read them all and like knew this story um how did you feel about um the season did you did you binge it all in like one sitting or did you dole it out uh, that sounds like me to have binged it all in one season uh sitting i was probably like a couple days <laughs> I think it was like over a weekend or something like that. It's something that I did. A <laughs> long lost weekend. Yeah, lost weekend yeah. of Sandman. <laughs> Sounds like me. Um, I think I was racing. Um, you know, I, I understood the broad strokes of how they were dividing the season. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think I was racing to get to first 24-7 and the sound of her wings, knowing yes. how strong those issues are and was so interested in seeing – how they were adapted um, on screen. And then I think I took like a, a, a slightly more leisurely like stroll through the doll's house section of the rest. And then the, the final two dream a thousand cats and Calliope, of course, like came out of this, this like very interesting surprise at the end of the season. Um, at least for me, I didn't know they were coming. And so, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's been, it's been super interesting as an adaptation. I think, Neil Gaiman, who I have enormous amount of respect for, his work has not been the most easily adaptable, I think. Um, and, mm-hmm. I, you know, he's talked to me and to the public about the ways in which, you know, certain, like, adaptations have matched his expectations and those that happen. I remember talking to him before Good Omens, and he was like, I really think we did it this time. Like, we really did it. You know, mm-hmm. American Gods was famously thorny and like good omens since he was more creatively involved than here again he is the showrunner but sometimes mm-hmm. with love and respect to every showrunner that has ever existed and every author that's ever existed like sometimes the author shouldn't be the showrunner and so I came in with a little trepidation of like is 
is he going to be willing to murder darlings in order to turn this thing that's a great comic book into a great TV show? And I would say it's way wildly more successful than I thought. I was wor- I was worried it was going to be, if that makes sense. It's not like I was looking for it to fail, but I was just I was nervous, you know, and I wanted it to be great. I think a lot of people were. And when you have um, a piece of art that is precious to you, and I mean, this, you know, comic series has had, what, you know, uh, 20, 30 years to become deeply, deeply precious to people. That sometimes looking into an adaptation can be a little bit nerve wracking because if it doesn't, I mean, you know, my thing is nobody's taking the original away from you. Whatever the adaptation does, like you will always have the original. At the same time, like having been a fan of things that are adapted, you want to that extra access to this story but what if it's not as good you know what if it doesn't do as much as the original um and i have to say like you know you've been listening so you've heard all of this but like the adaptive choices in this i have absolutely loved i mean for the most part um i feel like these the choices that have been made have made the most out of the the new medium that it's being translated into um while still you know really being i think as faithful to the original work as you can be you know and with some changes i know that neil is getting like a lot of uh slack for being you know quote unquote a little too woke uh and and the thing is is that like you know as he said i i just saw a video of him saying this before he's like i just replaced that with having respect for people <laughs> you know and that like sure, yeah. and that's one of the things that i love is that the some of the things from the original like there were a couple of things in there that i was like ah, you know this is something we really need to kind of like acknowledge yeah. that we've learned we've learned some things between then and now um and and the adaptation and the work and everything i feel like it is it is so inclusive and it is making Sandman more accessible to more people, which I think for great stories is the best thing you can do. Absolutely. And I think that Neil had like immediate brilliant pushback to talking about like the, mm-hmm. how Sandman itself was pushing boundaries at the time, you know, and essentially mm-hmm. like I've heard all of this before, <laughs> like this is very familiar yeah. to me, you know, and it's not <laughs> like he took something that was extremely stodgy and straight and white and cis and you know diversified right. it like there was mm-hmm. there was diversity and and diversity of opinions and a diversity of points of view in his original run and he's just made it even richer i think so for all of th- even more so yeah right so for all of that i i i really really uh appreciate it i would say that like where i think the show is strongest um because I think the sound of her wings is is like far and away um, my favorite episode um, is where it's willing, really willing to. I mean, it's a very faithful adaptation of that issue, the sound of her wings, but like where mm-hmm. it's willing to let some things go in favor of the strongest story, because I think intersp like as you say, to take advantage of this new medium, interspersing the hobgoblin story with the Sound of Her Wings story, men of, so putting Men of Good Fortune together with the Sound of Her Wings, such a brilliant ad- adaptive choice. So brilliant. Absolutely. And there are definitely certain creators who might feel overly precious and say the Sound mm-hmm. of Her Wings, which is sort of like a fame, very, very famous issue that 
changed hearts and minds about what Sandman was capable of. I think there's certainly some overly precious creators who might say, I'm not touching a hair on the head of that story. Mm-hmm. But to do this instead, which is to really dig into how it reflects the Men of Good Fortune mm-hmm. story, that's the height of genius of this adaptation, I think. I know. That was amazing to me. Like, because it is, you know, you're stitching together these two separate stories and stories that are kind of outside of the main narrative line. Like, we're sort of taking a break and we're doing a couple of short stories and, like, you stitch them together. The warm transfer from death in The Sound of Her Wings to death at the beginning of Hob Gadling's story, I thought was beautiful. The fact that thematically there were reflections in there with, you know, dreams and ability to connect with people yeah. the way that death does. And then then to connect with Hob and oh my god like at the ending you know I hear it's impolite to keep one's friends waiting I mean my god like I, I that cried. and that is a love story I do too it gets me every time I choked up just saying it now the um the love story that they tell there between first between dream and death there's a love story there and then there's the love story between dream and Hob um and how that thematically feeds into Dream's overall arc happening in this season between the first, you know, the first narrative jump, um, you know, with the the capture and then having to get all his stuff back. I want my hat back, right? <laughs> um, and uh, which is a reference to a, a, a book by John Class and look it up, you will not be sorry. Um, but then to, uh, to jump in to do this little transition and then jump into like a second narrative hop, like this is being adapted into a television series, but this structure is not typical of a television series and yet I think that it works beautifully um and so one of the things that I really love about that is of course me being a story nerd there's so many things that they're doing wonderfully there's so much visual work there's so much sound work there's so much amazing stuff going on here but the fact that there is fidelity not just to the beats of the original story but to story itself Mm. like to me as a story nerd this reads as a love letter to story as well and he is king of stories and that's what dreams are and all of that so for me this is my catnip absolutely i know i've learned so much about story from you about like the basic building blocks of story i think you're so brilliant when you talk about it and um oh thank you so i was i have been thinking a lot about how this very thing which deconstructs the nature of story is like your platonic ideal perhaps of of what we can spend time oh, in you my know goodness. but i th- to that end i was thinking about how i thought it was a really brilliant adaptive choice to pull the corinthian thread in through earlier and throughout yes. to make that a more substantive uh, antagonist throughout mm-hmm. i think that's a really good tv storytelling adaptive choice to because TV episodes are issues of comic books, yes, on the one hand, but with comics, I think we're much more ready and forgiving to start anew with a new issue yep. or a new storyline. And with TV, we are are conditioned for arcs. And so to mm-hmm. pull some of these isolated, more isolated stories into longer arcs, I thought was really genius mm-hmm. as well. 
for sure. Yeah, just incredible work. Um, all right. So one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about um, is once again, here we have two issues, yes. like, you know, kind of stitched together, probably not quite as as harmoniously. They are definitely feeling like two, sure. two short stories um, with uh, Dream of a Thousand Cats and Calliope. Um, what did you think about that as the, this bonus episode that we got this season? Um, it was really fascinating because when Calliope didn't show up as part of the season, which like, you know, necessarily Mm -hmm. why should it, but I was almost Mm -hmm. wondering if, if they might skip that these, these two issues might be issues that they could even skip if they wanted to dream of a thousand casts because it's such like an oddball issue. Um, but really fun, but uh, such an oddball issue. And then Calliope, because as you very articulately outlined in your coverage of it as an issue of comics, it's it's a very thorny story and one that I have sort of the hardest time with when I reread Sandman. And so to have it drop as this bonus episode here at the end of all things um, was very interesting. And then, so then I was even more on pins and needles to watch mm-hmm. Calliope especially like Dream of a Thousand Cats I really love the almost whimsical freedom of the breaking of form of how that's adapted and how that reflects the books but Calliope is so tough and so um I found myself extremely pleased with the adaptive changes and choices that were made and it really felt to me like Neil and and I have to assume the, you know, very other various other writers who are working on this show, you know, were smartly acknowledging the way in which that story could use a an update. Most specifically, I think in point of view. What do you What do you think? Oh yeah, um, I I was extremely nervous. I have to say, when it dropped, like I you know, absolutely just devoured the first season as soon as I got access to it. It was, it was like two days. It was definitely lost weekend (laughs) material for me. Um, And then that was well before they dropped the, that last episode. And when they dropped that last episode, I was like, well, you know, dream of a thousand cats is absolutely, you know, no pun intended, my catnip. Like I love cats. I'm a cat person, Um, you know? And so, and I've, and I loved that issue and it was really fun and it's kind of out there. And so I was all ready for dream of a thousand cats, but collide it was going to be a really, really big challenge for me. And I found myself not wanting to go to it. And then finally got to the point where the deadline was coming and I was going to talk about it on the show. And I'm like, I have to watch this thing, you know? Um, and when I sat down with it, I was, I knew what was going on. And I don't, I think that they, they kept the, like, it's, it's fairly clear what's happening, but we don't see it. Yeah. Like it is, it is implied. It is not, um, you know, shown. Um, and that to me, like, that's all I needed. That's all I needed to be able to get through that story is just like, I understand that this is happening. I know this is happening. We have Erasmus Fry being absolutely clear about what, what needs to happen, right. Yeah. To make Calliope provide that inspiration. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like, so in the end, once I got past that and I realized that I was not going to be forced to live through something that would be, you know, like somewhat triggering for me, yeah. right. Um, that, uh, that I was able to, uh, to watch this and appreciate it. And I really like, you know, it's, it's a tough story. Calliope's a tough story. Um, 
but I liked it. Like I, I did really appreciate it. And, um, and I thought that like the way that it was done, I just felt, I felt safe, you know, like I felt safe with this story, you know, but it's, it's tough, you know, listening to you and Elisa talk about it in the episode where you covered the issue, which I think was titled Mm -hmm. in by the asshole, which was really funny. Um, (laughs) talking about, it's funny to think I almost have to call it the camera where the camera goes in the comic. But like, yeah, w- mm-hmm. when we talk about sexual assault as a storytelling, quote unquote, mm-hmm. device and the way in which right. you and I, the time that we've been in this role of covering stories, the attitudes mm-hmm. have radically mm-hmm. shifted. When I first started, it was sort of like this appalling but like all the rage right to if you wanted to show yeah. something mm-hmm. really important and harrowing you were going to show a woman mm-hmm. get sexually assaulted and that was going to happen you know and yeah. and it's um mm-hmm. it's prevalent in in the story that i first became aware of your work around which is Buffy the vampire slayer very important yep. story to both of us mm-hmm. um it's prevalent in the story that i'm probably most known for covering which is game of thrones like and so i've spent a lot yep. of time thinking about how these are these are covered and i would i remember you were talking about in the comic how we're on her face so we're really processing it through her face and then that made me think of the version i hope this is okay to talk about it Uh, please let me know if it's not but like the depiction that i think has had the most conversation around it which is census wedding night in season five of game of thrones and the yes. way in which mm-hmm. that camera was on her face a bit, but then it goes to Theon Greyjoy, another person in the room, and talking to the creators yeah. about that choice, they were like, well, we didn't want to exploit her, so we put the camera on him. But I was like, he's mm-hmm. not the assaulter. He's also a victim in the room. But I was like, but then you're making it about his pain when it's her issue. And really, honestly, yes. I don't need to see it at all. To, to understand mm-hmm. what's going on. And so I was thrilled that that seemed to be the attitude of this episode, which is like, you don't need to show it for me yes. to understand the pain and ramifications of it. And that's the least exploitative yeah. way that you can do it. That's That was my feeling. Anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah, 100% agree. Um, I think that we do see a lot of sexual assault in storytelling and that um, uh, in a lot of stories and definitely in some stories that I've covered, um, it almost gets to the point where it is like the go-to thing when we want to put a woman in danger that we have to put her in a situation where she is, you know, in threat of or is actually sexually assaulted. And that there is definitely, um, there has been in the past, a real tendency to do that in a highly sexualized male gazy sort of way. Right. Um, when what is actually happening is is a really huge trauma that is not a sexy moment. Um, so uh, to see that to see them not step away from the reality of the situation while still making it clear that this is what is happening without leaning into that as a way of, of, you know, creating excitement, you know, and adding that moment of, Oh my God, isn't this edgy? Um, I felt that it, it, say it allowed me access to a story I actually was really interested in of course I'm a writer like a muse story is always going to be interesting without 
traumatizing me in the process so much that I couldn't access it, which is honestly what I was afraid of. And then, of course, when they did it this way, I was like, I should have known. I should have just trusted these people. <laughs> it's just that it takes a while. Yeah. It takes a while to earn trust, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I, I deeply, deeply appreciated that because I, and, I, you know, and one of the things I loved, I think, so much was the uh, the the virtue signaling of Richard Maddox. And the, you know, I want women. I want people of color. I want all of that. And it is that um, that very visible. I'm doing this because people are watching and would not be doing it otherwise, um, which I really super loved, especially given the you know I mean the dumbass criticism that this show has been getting for like you know how dare you make death black like yeah I'm sorry but Kirby Howell Baptiste can be my anything anytime <laughs> anywhere I don't care she can play Superman I don't care she's amazing she's like, so um, good that they, everything she does she's incredible I love her so yeah. much um, and was so delighted when I heard about her casting and she's perfect in the role um, but you know all of this sturm and drang about you know how are we casting this and we're you know we're being too woke and blah 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 which is just nonsense it's pure nonsense anybody can play a role if they play the role really well and if they can bring that to it then that's awesome and that's amazing and let's have it let's get more people the more people see themselves in these stories the more people have access to these stories if you love the stories you want everybody share to feel like they belong with them so like that's the only if you love the story I think that's the only way you can look at it that's just my personal opinion um but to to see all of that in this season to see how thoughtful um all of this was done and then we get to this episode which was terrifying for me to go into um I just I I had such a deep appreciation for it and I loved all of it I think the casting is really genius too because Arthur Darville who plays Richard Maddock in in the episode right (gasps) Rory Rory like Mm -hmm. okay so Rory from Doctor Who yeah so he's you know I I like I like the way that Neil will draw from you know when you see uh, people that he's worked with before crop up or like, you know, especially Doctor mm-hmm. Who actors crop up and stuff like that. What I love is that Arthur Darville um, in the Audible version is voicing Shakespeare um, and mm-hmm. Daniel Wyman, who's currently playing maybe Gandalf in Rings of Power, I don't know, The Stranger is the one who voiced our, uh, mm-hmm. Richard Maddock in the Audible. Um, but I love putting Arthur Darville in this because Arthur Darville has such nice guy energy you know what I mean like it's just yes. coming off him in mm-hmm. waves so to cast a nice guy it's like um <clears throat> oh shoot I can't remember the name of that movie um uh, the Carrie Mulligan movie that Emerald Fennell wrote and directed that came out a couple years ago um basically where she cast all these nice guy actors a parade Bo Burnham like every nice guy oh actor, a promising you know, young yeah, woman, promising woman was it a promising it. young yeah, woman yeah, right yeah. where the all the super likable guys were just yeah. detestable yeah yes and so this is yeah. the same trick is like let's let's take Rory who we love from Doctor Who, who and we put, love. yeah we yes. love him and put him here and have him say just the most repulsively quote-unquote woke disgusting things because yes. we know what's in his attic you know and i just i thought that was absolutely right. brilliant i loved it 
I, I loved the faux woke. Yeah. I love the faux woke because that is definitely worthy of criticism. Um, but yeah, to have this, like, I mean, and who, like, the second I saw him, I was like, oh, it's Rory, like, because I, I love him so much. Um, and to see him playing that role and also to to take a look at the damage that the quote unquote nice guys do under this, you know, this facade of niceness which is not as it appears, you know, um, and to see him and he did, he did a wonderful job, like to, to create that internal tension within me of, Oh, I love him. Oh, he's disgusting. Like, um, he, I thought he did such a wonderful job with it. Um, and I adore him as an actor. It was so lovely to see him. Um, and you know, and now you bring up the audible. Um, I know I didn't plan this, but, uh, but you've listened to the audible. Yeah. Um, so we've got the comic books, we've got the audible, uh, recordings. I haven't listened to, uh, to the part three yet, Me neither. Uh, yeah. but I listened to the first two. Um, and those performances as well, I think have just been like the, the one thing that I, um, that comes up in my mind when I think about the audible is I think about that BBC Lord of the Rings that was done some years ago. That was From like so, the 80s? I mean, it was so incredible. I think yeah, With I think like, it was. I where, mean, it was it was a while ago. Where Bill Nye plays Samwise Gamgee. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. I know I had the CDs yeah. in like the early aughts, so it was sometime before yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I remember that I just absolutely loved that BBC performance of it, um, and to have these stories performed in the Audible version, I have to say it's like as much as we've talked about the comics and the TV version. If there's anybody out there who loves the show, who loves these comics, who loves this story, who has not listened to the Audible, I cannot recommend it enough. I think it is one of the most beautifully produced things I've heard in a long time. I have to say, to be like completely honest with you, and you can cut this out of the podcast if you mm-hmm. want, but like the the no, it's all right. The hardest thing for me to wrap my arms around in this in this Netflix adaptation is Tom Sturridge, who I think looks the part to a perfect T, and is sometimes yeah. mm-hmm. not playing the role exactly how I envision Dream to be, and I think it's not fair to him because. Uh, James McAvoy is just doing such an incredible voice performance on the Audible, and so mm-hmm. I think I think that puts un- very unfairly in my consumption of things <laughs> Tom Sturridge on the back foot. Mm-hmm. I cannot argue that he doesn't look the perfect dream, a dreamy dream, perfect. But like James McAvoy's <laughs> voice performance is next level for me. That imperiousness. You know, that mm-hmm. he captures so perfectly, but then there's like the warmth cracks through where you need it to crack through. I think it's so good. And I, um, that Lord of the Rings BBC full cast that you mentioned, there's a bunch of good Neil Gaiman ones. There's um, the Neverwhere, that, speaking of James McAvoy, the Neverwhere that they did, I thought was really, really good. Oh, um, I haven't heard that, but yeah. Neverwhere is one of my favorites. Yeah. So, Ma- yeah. yeah McAvoy is mm-hmm. the lead in that one. It was so good. I remember like having mm-hmm. to please BBC Lords forgive me like uh, bootleg that because it wasn't available in America and I like really desperately wanted to listen to the audio of Neverwhere so I did um but Mm -hmm. my favorite full cast uh audio is the His Dark Materials full cast audio have you ever listened to that one 
It's I have so not. good. It's really good. It is yeah. unbelievable how good these these audio productions are. And I think they don't quite get as much hype or as much attention maybe as uh, as like the TV show or the original comics. But I just wanted to throw that out yeah. there because I think that the, the Audible Sandman has just been absolutely Yeah, that fantastic. cast is killer. Yeah. Killer cast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So at the end of every discussion, of course, you've been listening to me for a long time. You know, I, I always end with what's your favorite part. So I would like to ask you uh, from Sandman season one, what's your favorite part? It's the end of The Sound of Her Wings. It's hobgoddling and, and <sighs> you know, yeah. dream in, in the pub around the corner. And I love, again, speaking of adaptive changes, like the way in which the timeline mm-hmm. change force that ending to be different because it doesn't mm-hmm. completely align with the, you know, the every hundred years meeting sort of thing. So to force that waiting that Hobb does to be longer and more stre- like stressful, I just, I was crying. I cried. I thought it was so incredible. <laughs> I loved it so much. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in terms of, I mean, you didn't ask me this, but in terms of like the Calliope adaptation, I just want to mention because I got to know you via our shared love of Buffy, I yes. really appreciated your conversation with Elisa about creators like Joss and, and, how hard it can be for those of us who have spent so much time loving a story like we love Buffy to reconcile that with someone like Joss Whedon, who is on the one hand brilliant, but on the other hand has revealed a lot of ugly sides of himself. And, you know, I know that Harry Potter fans are grappling with this when they, you know, deal with J.K. Rowling, like the idea that the story can live outside of the creator, like that we refuse to relinquish this story to a person whose ideals no longer or maybe never did align with ours. I think I took a lot of energy from the Potter kids when this all came out about Joss. And I was like, I am making the decision to not bury Buffy with this because this story lives on its own. And that idea feels so Sandman to me, the idea of a story having a life of its own as it lives inside you, the reader or the listener or the watcher or whatever it is. So. Absolutely. Um, And I'm really glad that that was that was helpful. It's also when you know, when you're talking about a story that has like one creator kind of, you know, given, you know, credit for it. But if you think about a TV show, how many thousands of people work on that and some of the people who were abused, you know, like live off those residuals. So um, yeah, separating out the story from the person who told it um, is definitely like a skill set, something that we all kind of need to grapple with where our lines are with that um but yeah i'm glad that i'm glad that i was able to help you kind of uh you know keep buffy in your heart and soul there's a lot of really really great stuff in there yeah it's uh as you say the line should be wherever someone feels comfortable having it but the idea this this specific calliope story is such an interesting part of that conversation very prescient to some of these conversations that we're having mm-hmm. now about some of our creators and uh yeah and then just you know thank you so much to you to Lisa for like basically holding a master class in story and comic storytellings and Sandman and Neil Gaiman of like who I've been a fan of for so long and and all of that so um 
Thank you for this podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. It is such a joy. Every time I get to talk to you, it lightens my heart so much. So thank you so much for being part of this. It was so great to have you here. All right. That is our interview with Joanna Robinson. Oh, my God, Joanna. Thank you so much. It's always a joy to spend time with Joanna. And please, everybody, look her up if you are not familiar with her work. If you like Endless, you're going to love Joanna and her body of work. All right, Elisa. So here we are. We are at the favorite part, which, of course, is always my favorite part of every episode of Endless is when we talk about our favorite part of the episode or issue that we're talking about. Uh, What is your favorite part of Cats and what is your favorite part of Calliope? Uh, cats gotta be the kitten's ferocious bite. Well, we've just seen the owner's Birkenstock. Uh, just love that. And, um, mm-hmm. that is chef's bite. And, yes. uh, the artistry, I mean, to say I like it seems a little wrong, but the artistry of how Calliope's rape is depicted is just a masterclass in indirection. I remember that when I was I, I was writing a story which uh, was for the poanthology uh, Snifter of Terror, and I wanted to imply a little vagina dentata thing. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I was talking to Mark Russell, and he said, "Well, when you cannot show a thing, you know." And I would add, "When you do not want to show a thing, show the impact of that thing," which is how we got the bicycle seat with the teeth marks. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. I love that. Um, For me, I have to say it's Dream Cat in A Thousand Cats. Like, I love Dream just kind of like sidling in with that cool cat movement and telling the story of how cats had power. And if you want power, dream your power, which I think is a really interesting kind of commentary on manifestation, which is something that a lot of people roll their eyes at as well they should. Um, But the thing about manifestation is that there is actually like a kernel of truth to it. There is something to, um, you know, believing that the thing that you want is possible. And then that belief fuels the work that you can do in order to make it happen. But believing in the first place, like you make it happen, it doesn't just come out of thin air, but thinking positively, thinking toward that, thinking that what you want is possible, is something that does make it happen. And so there is that really kind of cool, like manifestation in the way that it that it should be, you know, but of course, it's not easy. She has to get a 1000 cats to a believer and b dream the same thing at the same time. This is definitely, you know, a long term goal. Um, and for Calliope, for me, it was Maddox's punishment being that he got exactly what he wanted again. Like I said, I struggle with the forgiveness portion of the program. So <laughs> seeing that, like, you know, that righteous justice just delivered to this son of a bitch, no matter how much I love Arthur Darvel, Maddox was disgusting to me. So it was really, really fun to kind of see him get exactly and like careful what you wish for. There's always that in anything where you, you know, try to get something that you have not earned. Um, and I just kind of like I really I really liked that part I have to admit maybe it doesn't reflect real well on me but that's okay fiction is a mirror sometimes it's not flattering If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish, and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast, or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, revelation. That is the province of dream, if your heart is strong and you are not afraid. Endless is going on hiatus for a bit, but we'll be back soon with Sandman 32, Slaughter on Fifth Avenue the first issue of Sandman Volume 5, A Game of You. Until then, be warned, dreams have a price.